The Transportation Security Administration is constantly generating new screening requirements, equipment that can sense or detect something and sound an alarm if need be. It falls to the Homeland Security Department's Transportation Security Laboratory, operated by the Science and Technology Directorate, to work with TSA and the potential vendors to evaluate and test a particular technology. In the third interview in this week's series with laboratory staff, I spoke with the Developmental Test and Evaluation Alarm Resolution Branch Manager, Jason Stairs. We're really a middle person between the OEMs who are a business trying to sell equipment to the government and the government trying to find equipment that matches their requirements. So we really uh, work that middle area and help the systems get ready to go to certification. Give us an example of a type of technology or system and what do you do with it? A classic one would be an explosive trace detection system or an ETD, and those are the systems in the airport that after you go through the primary x-ray and primary personnel screening that they might swab a little cloth on your baggage and put it into a machine. And what that system is looking for is trace amounts of explosives, and we define trace as you can't see it. So it's little particles of explosives that the machine can detect and pick up, and those are systems we've worked with for years, working with the vendors, trying to help get them ready, and then uh, informing the government of the capabilities. So you have the primary requirement from TSA, and you work with industry to get them there. Yes, and so we understand the government's requirements And then we also understand the technology, sort of our interpreters of the requirement to tell the technology vendors, this is what you need to do and you need to get better here. And then the people who are buying the equipment aren't always technical. So we tell them, yes, it met your requirements. So Right. So TSA then doesn't actually contract for the gear in the sense of here's what we need and then you can sell it to us. TSA traditionally contracts with a company to buy the equipment. So that's after it's already passed through testing. And in science and technology in the S&T directorate where we sit, there is funding for some of these companies to develop towards those requirements and there's funding for our testing to really it's a spiral development. So sometimes it can take years uh, where a company comes in with a system, we test it, say this is where you did well, but you know you need to work over here and, and do a little bit better. And They'll go away, they'll do some research and development, and then they come back, oh, you got it, you did better, or geez, yeah, you're not quite there yet. So it kind of does go around in the spiral development evolution of the technology towards those requirements. And in trace explosives seems to be a focus of a lot of the work at the laboratory. What is left to be understood about it? Well, the problem is it's just so difficult to test. Ideally, we want to have our test be reproducible, and quantifiable. So if TSA says you need to detect this very specific amount of explosives, we need to be able to know that we're delivering that amount of explosives to the technology and you can't see it, so that's hard, and then make sure you're doing it the same every time. So it's just really a laborious process. takes a lot of analytical equipment I'm sure you've seen as you toured the lab. And uh, we're actually one of the few places in the world that has all of that equipment just focused on uh, this effort. Right. And there's also new and exotic explosives coming into being all the time. So you almost may have to start over every time. Yeah. The job security uh, (laughs) keeps us having to sometimes do things over again in the sense that we've tested some system, we've certified it. Once that happens and it's out in the field, we keep one of those copies here. But then there's a new intelligence that comes in, and then there's a new threat that people are chatting about that shouldn't be chatting about it. And so, you know, then they ask us, could the systems detect this new thing? And then we have to go through and do the the testing cycle again. 
And do the surfaces upon which it has to be detected or the manner in which it has to be detected, there's a lot of variables there also? Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> And understanding those. So the explosive trace detection systems are chemical detectors, basically. And we're looking for very specific chemicals, the explosive chemicals. But there's a lot of other chemicals in the universe, right, that could go through a checkpoint from hand lotions to whatever might be on a surface. And those can all change the chemistry in an ETD, which might change the results. So that's also why we're constantly looking into those things, primarily to make sure our test is representative of what they would find in a security environment. Right. And let's take the carry-on example. Your carry-on baggage goes through a machine Mm -hmm. and it's x-rayed from different angles and a 3D image is developed of it, of what's in there, pictures of things. That is not going to see the trace explosive. No. And there's also not a detector inside that machine that's sniffing for explosive traces. No, though we've tried that. Right. So that means that it's the discretion of the TSO, to your knowledge, that they would even try to test for a trace explosive in the first place. Well, trace gets triggered as an alarm resolution technology that if they have suspicions for one reason or another, but might be that they see something in the X-ray image that they're not sure about or suspicious about, then they could send it to trace and then they'll look for uh, those invisible trace particles. So a lot of studies we did years ago and some still now ongoing is making bombs, doing it in clean and dirty methods, and then measuring that trace amount of explosives left behind. And it's very difficult. We have some of the world experts here, and there's some people here that can do it, but we have all the right tools and all the right equipment. It's, it can be very difficult to do such a clean build that you haven't left some trace behind. Right. So I guess if you're a really good bomb maker or something, you would do your work in a hazmat suit and then kind of get out of it. A lot of protocols, yeah, go into it to be that careful. And uh, when you get into the trace world, or at least I can say personally, when I got into it, I found out what trace meant by, I, you know, I was working with something in a, in a hood in the laboratory and a little bit of the powder just poofed. And I went, ooh, I hope that doesn't cause a problem. And then I came in Monday, that was Friday, and they said, what happened in the fume hood? It's blowing out all the trace equipment. And I said, I'm sorry, that was me. And then they spent three days trying to clean it, and it just kept coming up hot, just from that one little poof of material that went in the hood. They're very sensitive. It's incredible how sensitive they are. But they are just looking for those trace amounts, not the actual bulk bomb. And that's where there are some other alarm resolution technologies being looked at uh, that would look at that bulk material to identify it. This would be if you've definitely found something that you're suspicious about, can you now use a bulk resolution tool to identify it? Right. But in the trace world, then the challenge is twofold, sounds like. One, there's new types of explosive materials being whipped up by these people all the time, whoever they are, the terrorists. At the same time, you need to detect ever smaller levels of things you do know how to trace. Well, luckily, they don't keep making them lower. They, they are at a set level that uh, we're looking for, but they do keep adding on to the list, uh, which is challenging for the technology. But, you know, we've continued to do it to this day. I believe they're still we're working now on updating systems that are currently deployed to do just that. And what are some of the challenges in the bulk area once you're past trace? Well, so for bulk area, the ETD, as I mentioned, is a chemical detector. And on the bulk resolution technology side, it's more of uh, physical detectors looking for optical spectroscopy. So both will detect and identify individual molecules, but one does it with a laser and the other does it with a time-of-flight IMS tube. So some of the challenges on the bulk side are security 
organizations sometimes want like you i heard you refer to it earlier they want magic or magic wands like we want to be able to see through everything and know what's in it well (laughs) it's hard to see through everything there's just some things that are going to be more challenging and you might have a different technology to look at that so that's where a lot of the the different layers of security uh, we had an old director that referred to it as swiss cheese that there might be holes in one technology but then there's another set of swiss cheese that will catch those holes and once you add it all up you can't get through all the holes but that's a primary challenge right there being able to see into the insides of something and you're making a lot of progress in detecting what is in jars and bottles and containers pursuant to i guess tsa's need to be able to let people bring a bottle of something that's 16 ounces or whatever TSA currently has deployed bottle liquid scanners, which are mostly made for medical essentials. But that technology, now that it's been out in the field for a few years, has matured. Industry has learned much more of what those requirements are of wanting to see into things, and they are starting to really advance the capability of their systems to be able to see into some of these containers. So if it's a shampoo bottle, for example, they'd be able to look through them and and see if that's an explosive in there or if it's just shampoo. Right. And there's a great deal of variation among even a given class of liquid, right? I understand like gin and vodka, both clear distilled beverages, have different spectroscopic qualities or different detectable quality, so you have to really be fine-grained about it. Yeah, they can have different signatures, and it depends on, right, how fine-grained you want to get. Uh, For gin and vodka, you know, we would maybe, if we were curious to find such things, we would just set it to detect ethanol, which they both have ethanol in it. So you would find that it's an alcohol. If you wanted to really get into what kind of alcohol, that would require a whole other level of training and testing. But right now you don't have that requirement. No, it's easier to find there's fewer threats that we're looking for versus all of the other things that aren't threats. So it's it's more of a, is it a, a bad thing or not? If it's not bad, then it's good. Sounds like though the trend here is towards being able to detect more and more things as a way of letting people take more and more things back on airplanes someday. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, there is conversation going on of, well, can we just identify the good things. And then if we can say it's a good thing, then we'll let it through. But just like I mentioned, there's so many more benign items that are out there that to be able to try to pick all of them and all of their variations and train an instrument to identify each of them is just a, it's a large task. Well, there's infinity out there. Right. That's the problem. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When sometimes they say, what chemicals will it alarm on, for example? And I'm like, you mean in the entire universe or in this – I mean you have to sort of bound that a little bit. Right. Uh, Prell and Selsun Blue are <laughs> right. totally different animals. Yeah. How much do you want to differentiate? Jason Stairs is the Developmental Test and Evaluation Alarm Resolution Branch Manager at the Homeland Security Department's Transportation Security Laboratory in Atlantic City. Tomorrow we wind up the series with the Applied Research Division's top chemist. Find all of the interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? 
Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I uh, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually, usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they, ba they basically were in d direct care. And, and I will say, you know, and I obviously will say about my, my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but, uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're, they're really heroes. And, um, so I was, I was drawn when I, I, and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and, um, I learn. Uh, every day, almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused uh has a has a good story like it can just turn a day around for you and 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 you think of i i you know so often when you'll walk away i'll be like you know whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know stressing me out and come on you know like look at look at terrell like he he, he faces everything with optimism and 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 i've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the united states and globally you see people who have had everything stacked against them you know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and you know, we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day. But uh, man, you see, it, it, and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics, no one's excluded. 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot. But you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.